Thanks to the worship team today. Josh, that was great. I was, uh, as an old folky who plays the guitar, but not even a quarter as good. I mean, I, it's great, and I appreciate it. You know, I, I'm still one of those guys that carries the guitar up high, you know. It's bad, bad. Um, this is kind of the last, a lot of you are going to be gone in the next few weeks, and, and, and I just wanted to say we're going to miss you. You need to know there's life after your final exams, uh, and, and that actually Tyndale continues. The B.Ed. people uh, will still be here. The doctor of ministry people come in May and June at different times, and we run a whole summer school program with over 800 students during the summer, but we'll miss the Newfoundland accents. Uh, as you go back to the rock, um, we'll miss you. Come back. Uh, and uh, we'll miss the rest of you as well. And we hope you who are thinking about coming, we'd love to have you here at Tyndale. If you have your Bibles, it's going to seem like a strange passage, but I'd like you to open to Jonah. It's uh, probably the worst sermon ever preached in the Bible. At least it's the worst sermon ever preached in the Bible, probably not the worst sermon that I have ever preached. I still remember as a young single youth pastor taking on the task of preaching about marriage in the church I was serving. One day I was cleaning out my, my sermons and I, and I found it. And I looked through it and I went, it's a good thing God takes sermons and makes them something special because this was crap. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. I mean, it was really, really bad. But this is probably the worst sermon preached in the Bible. I mean, Jonah comes to the edge of the city with a kind of reluctance. I've always wondered what it means that he came to the edge of the city. It kind of shows his lack of commitment to the process and even the call that God has on him. It's kind of like coming to preach against Toronto and going as far as pickering and standing there and screaming out this one sentence, five words in the Hebrew sermon that heads, and then when he's done, he just kind of lays it on him and when he's done, he heads up the hill for a moment to wait for God's response of judgment. I mean, this sermon, no illustrations for all you homiletics people. No poems. No slogans. Or no cute alliterations. I mean, not even a great title. It's just a message. In 40 days, if you don't repent, God will destroy the city. And Jonah proclaims this judgment without care or even a compassionate tone in his voice because he thinks they deserve it. And when he's finished, he retires to the hill. I kind of see him in a beach chair, 
kind of sitting up on the hill with his binoculars, looking down, watching as God gives it to them. Because remember, they deserve it. Well, we know the story. He had run from God for a while. Just as an aside, what makes us think that we can run from God? Isn't that interesting? And then God comes to Jonah a second time. And again, saying and kind of wanting to make sense, he kind of says that this is a Gary Nelson paraphrase. Let me write it down for you. Get up. Get out. Go to the Ninevites and tell them to repent. And finally, Jonah, worn out from the whale thing and with no strength left to resist, he grudgingly does what God commands and he goes and he preaches. (coughs) Nineveh represents power. Nineveh represents all of those things that the big city represents. If you're from a small town, it's the big city. If you're from Western Canada like me, it's Toronto. And in the end, after the sermon, Jonah under his breath probably says, There. Are you satisfied, God? I did it. It's done. Now you do your thing. I remember sitting in seminary at Fuller years ago with my ethics professor, Lou Smeads. It was one of the wonderful things about being there in those days of sitting together with professors and having coffee and talking about what I thought were big ideas at the time. And we were talking about this whole idea of justice and righteousness And we were kind of waxing, or I thought I was waxing eloquently. And Lou Smeads looked me in the eye, and we started talking about Jonah. And he says, everybody thinks that the Jonah story is about obedience. But they're wrong, he says. It's much more than that. He says, it's a story which compares God's compassion to the stiff, self-righteous, and the harsh backbone of Jonah. I thought a lot about that. It's not about obedience. But this story is a story about compassion and righteousness and how God holds that in balance. Well, back to the story. The response to the world's shortest and worst sermon is the greatest in the entire Bible. The people of a 60-mile-wide city all repent. I've been trying to get my mind around what a 60-mile-wide city would look like. And I remember flying into Sao Paulo, Brazil. Some of you who have done that will know this. And they announced to us on the airplane that we were about to land 30 minutes from now but out of your right window, you will see Sao Paulo, one of the largest cities in the world. And for half an hour, we flew in. Well, in this day, that's a Sao Paulo. 
And what happens is the whole city repents. They start to fast. They put on sackcloth from the oldest to the youngest. They roll in ashes. The king, who must have heard the sermon secondhand, leads them in the repentance. We're told even the cattle repent. And the dogs and the cats. Everybody repents. Even the cows got religion. The city changes is the point here. The city changes at its heart. Not forever, not perfectly, not from the top to the bottom, but it changes. This is an incredible story when you think of it. Cities can change. I'm an urban missiologist. This is one of the most critical things to understand and to hope for. Cities can change. People can change. And if you do not believe that this can happen, what do you believe about this week that is leading us to Good Friday and to Easter? I mean, what do you believe about the presence and the power of God to change lives? If you don't believe in life changing, and even cities, what a hopeless place to live in this week. As a result of this city's repentance, look at verse 10 of chapter 3. God has compassion. His long-suffering patience and compassion kicks into action. It says he changes his mind. And he doesn't destroy them. What's that great song we often sing? Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. God has compassion. And he changes his mind and he shows compassion to the city. But then comes chapter 4. And Jonah shows his heart. God has compassion. His long-suffering patience kicks into action. But not Jonah in chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4 begins with Jonah getting angry. He's really put off with God. He's mad first because he thinks God has made a fool of him. He's embarrassed him in front of the whole city. This is no way, Lou Smeads once told me, that you should treat a prophet, especially a prophet with a fragile ego. He says, again my paraphrase, I knew you'd do it. I knew you would do this. You want to know why Jonah didn't follow him the first time? You're getting a window into Jonah's heart. I knew you would do this to me. I knew you were a God of compassion. And you would have compassion on, this, on these people. Here's another paraphrase. It's not fair. It's not right. Look at me. You've made me look like a fool in front of all of these people. Now you know. And now you know why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Because he knew God. His compassion and his love. I also want to suggest there's another reason he didn't want to go. Another reason for him being so furious. It has to do with the kind of world that we live in. The kind of God we want to worship. The kind of God that Jonah wanted. Jonah wants a world where the bad guys 
always get what's coming to them. He wants a world in which violence returns violence. I mean, how do you trust a God who lets compassion get the upper hand? I mean, how do you trust a God who acts kind of like a wet-noodled, tolerant liberal? I mean, how do you trust a God who is just so darn loving? Jonah's furious because he wants his enemies and the people that he thinks are wrong to get their just reward. That's one of the most amazing things about this story. God works against our inclination to divide the world between us and them, friends and enemies. If God managed to care even for the Ninevites, if he manages to find a place of mercy for them, then what do you and I do with our enemies? A man walks into an Amish school in the U.S. and he lines up the children and he kills them. And the media flocks to the town to see how these Amish Christians will respond with their anger. And they don't get the story that they wanted and they get the story they can't understand. Forgiveness. As they watch Amish Christians go to the home of the killer and help his family. And the media are stunned. There's a wideness in God's mercy that we find difficult to understand. God saw people in this story and was compassionate. And there's the problem. And there's the lesson to be learned in this story. Morally righteous people have a tendency to divide people clearly between friends and enemies. Good guys and bad guys. Good girls and bad girls. God sees people in his compassion and wants them to have more time. He wants them to get what they deserve. Compassion and love and a relationship with things. All along, we thought this was a story about obedience. Jonah listening to what God wants him to do and not doing it. We get so caught up in the story of the fish swallowing him, and we miss what the story is about right from the start. This is a story about God, about how he holds in a kind of sacred balance righteousness and compassion. It's, it's about a prophet. Human beings find it hard to find balance. It's difficult to strike it in ourselves. Jonah asks the question, how long are you going to be patient and compassionate? And God says, as long as it takes. Because it's his desire that none should perish. Only God holds that tension between compassion and righteousness in a kind of holy, sacred balance. I'll never forget the day when one of my dearest friends in the church that I was serving had lunch with me. I had an ominous kind of feeling that this was not going to be a good lunch. And I was right. 
He told me that he was leaving our church. <coughs> we were the godparents of his children. We, I, I was struck at that lunch to the core of who I was. And I said, why? And he said, because we think you err too much to compassion. I remember thinking, yeah, you're probably right. I said to him, his name was Gary as well, you're right. But I said, some people would say that you err too much toward righteousness. And that's why we need each other. We need each other to hold some kind of tension between what is the natural inclination for each of us. This was years ago. And I still remember him looking across the table at me and saying this. I don't need you. We call that our vacation from hell. Because the next day we left on a holiday. We had booked this wonderful place on Long Beach in Vancouver Island, looking out onto the water. And Carly would find me oftentimes sitting out on the balcony, just staring out into the water, crying. And I was struck. And I wish I could have responded, but I was so hurt. But what I should have said to him is, yes, you do. I need you, and you need me. Because God can strike this balance between compassion and righteousness, but we only have each other to hold each other in tension. You see, it's not really that difficult to be self-righteous. <laughs> Everybody does it on a particular issue of their choice. It's really not that hard to be compassionate either. We all do it so well with people we like. But righteousness without Compassion is cold and it's hard. And compassion without righteousness is careless and it's weak. Ah, but holding it in tension, that's the trick. That is the art. That is the thing that only God does perfectly and we need to hear it is the heart of God to be righteousness, to be righteous, and at the same time to care compassionately, patiently, desiring change and waiting. Why is endurance a fruit of the Spirit? It's the waiting. That's what we celebrate this Holy Week. I thought you were wondering if this was an Easter sermon. That's what we celebrate this Holy Week. A righteous God's act of compassionate love. I remember a fellow student of mine in a seminary class on communication. We were all to do short personal stories and he had been a pilot in the United States Air Force. And he'd flown, at that time, what was one of the most exotic jet fighters. I think it was an F-5 Phantom jet. 
And I remember being struck as he described. He came in his gear, and he came into the class, and he described what it was like to fly this jet. And he was, I mean, it, you could, we were all jealous, you know, because he just, it, it sounded so fun to go so fast and so high. And then all of a sudden, he talked about his time when he was in Vietnam. And he started to tell of his experience of flying that jet and doing bombing raids over North Vietnam. And one particular time he began to describe when he was bearing down on a small Vietnam village where the Viet Cong were supposed to be. And he's talked about coming down and pushing the stick down and then releasing the bombs. And just as he pulled back on the stick, he looked down and he saw a whole bunch of people who were going into church. It was Sunday. He began to describe. I wrote this down. He said, I was shocked. I was stunned. I could see these people entering a church in the village. And it was my last glimpse as I pulled back on the stick. And the next thing I heard were the bombs dropping. And he said, all I could say to myself is they were Christians like me. Nobody ever told me, he said, that the Viet Cong had Christians. It could have been my hometown. It could have been my church. They looked just like us on a Sunday morning. They worshipped the same way that we worshipped. And, and I remember him just pausing and saying, nobody told me. Like, nobody told me. And then he cried. <laughs> and so did we. And I wondered that day, as we all cried, were the tears from the heart of God? Were they tears of wonder and compassion? Were they tears of both righteousness and compassion held in tension because we rested in the heart of God? My friends, don't you dare forget this Easter celebration. Don't you dare forget about a God longing, hoping, believing that we can change. Righteous and compassionate, all in one. God so loved the world that he gave us his son. Let's pray. With wonder and with majesty, you entered this time with a love that would not let us go. You spoke into our lives by gifting us with Jesus at the cross and at the resurrection may we see your heart so that your heart becomes ours in Jesus name Amen go with the wonder of Easter ahead Amen